The following podcast is sponsored by StructureTech. Our conversation today is going to focus around fire safety because we're in the middle of fire safety week here in the United States. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Structure Talk, a Structure Tech presentation. My name is Bill Ulrich, alongside Tessa Murray and Ruben Saltzman. As always, your three-legged stool coming to you from the Northland, talking all things houses, home inspections, and anything else that's rattling around in our brains. Welcome to today's episode. We're very excited to be having a conversation with a good friend of ours from way out on the West Coast, Skip Walker owner of Walker Property Evaluation Services, coming from the beautiful city of San Bruno, California. Good morning, Skip. How are you doing? Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Awesome. Our conversation today is going to focus around fire safety. And this is something that we've got some controversial topics we're going to cover today. I mean, this is this is going to put people on the edge of their seat. I can, I can promise you that. Let's kind of jump into this a little bit, Skip. I, I want you to introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about why you're so passionate about fire safety, but also tell us about some of the other projects you're working on. And then we'll kind of circle back to the fire safety business. But I want you to talk about CodeCheck right away, too. And- as well. Well, and you know what, before I even let you do that, Skip, I'm just going to step on this and I got to gush about Skip for a minute or two here before he gets into it. I know Skip because he's been beating this drum on smoke alarm safety for a long time. He's been heavily involved in ASHI, the American Society of Home Inspectors. He's taught two-hour classes at, at a bunch of different national conferences on that one single topic, smoke alarms. And he's, I mean, he he made a believer out of me that there is some serious differences in the smoke alarms out there. Our laws are probably wrong. And not only is he a huge proponent of this and passionate about it, but he is a very well-rounded guy when it comes to home inspections and building codes. He's one of the authors of the entire code check series. So I just, I want to say a little bit more because I know Skip's not going to brag himself up appropriately. So (laughs) I'm doing it for you, Skip. So, I mean, I was there at some of these conferences. You won a bunch of awards from Ashy too, like member of the year and John Cox award. And I don't remember what else, but you won. I think there was one year where you like cleaned the table. You won every award they had, I think. So, all right, now we'll turn it over to you, Skip. Can they see me? Because I'm blushing. (laughs) (laughs) No, just us, man. No, I, I actually remember this is like in 2010. Douglas Hansen, who at that time was just, it was a colleague. Now he's, we're co-authors on Kojak, called me and said, we just had this guy at Golden Gate Ashy speak and you guys need to get him over at Silicon Valley Ashy. He's a fire chief from Albany, California. And the guy is talking about smoke alarms and you're not going to believe what he has to say. And it's really important. And the fire chief was a guy named Mark McGinn, who at that time was the the fire chief in Albany, small city. I think they've got, it's literally about one, one, one and a half square miles, 5,000 people, small city, but this guy was on fire. Comes over to our chapter, starts talking about ionization smoke alarms and photoelectric smoke alarms and what works and doesn't work and, and how people are dying. And to put it bluntly, I was pissed off when he got done because <laughs> I talked to clients and Ruben, I know you, you guys are doing the same thing. And, and I used to tell people, it's like, it doesn't matter. They all detect smoke. 
buy the cheapest ones, the ones that talk to you, it doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. And what I was telling people to do is to buy ionization smoke alarms. As you know, I can talk for hours on this stuff. So you'll have to hit the pause button when it's appropriate. <laughs> we'll um, rein in if we need to. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the long and the short of it is that uh, an ionization alarm will fail to detect a fire and people will die 55% of the time. So 55% of the time. I, so 55% failure rate in a real fire on an ionization smoke alarm wow. for a variety of reasons. But anyway, that was that was McGinn's message. And I, I remember I went up to him later on after he was done talking and I said, you know what? You got our attention. And I, I said, I know folks at the national level and the and the ASHI, I know people at Korea and the, and the state level. We're going to do something about this. And a couple of years later, I've, I've stayed in touch with Mark. He's, he's since retired, but uh, he told me, he said, you know, every time I do a talk, people would come up to me afterwards and say, I'm really upset and we're going to do something about this. He said, you guys are the only ones that did it. Anyway, so that's kind of how I got started on this. And uh, it just infuriated me that we lose roughly 3,000 people a year in the U.S., to fire deaths and residential. Two-thirds of those needless deaths. If I could wave my magic wand and put photoelectric alarms in every home in the United States, our fire death rate would drop 40% to 60% overnight. Crazy. Everybody wow. knows. I mean, the CPSC knows, the NIST, which is a National Institute of Standards and Testing, which is a federal government agency, they know, NFPA knows, ICC knows, everybody knows, yet here we are. They've known since the 70s. So, so I, I've, I've got, I got documents going back into the 70s, so I, skip, thousands of pages of stuff. Skip, what are the different smoke alarms out there? Because we kind of jumped right into it. We said ionization's bad, but give us the- The long uh, and the, the short of it. The long and short, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so ionization alarms use a little bit of radioactive material to ionize the air. And what they detect is changes in that electrical field caused by particle flow through them, which is a, maybe more technical than you guys want to get. But anyway, they they are really good at detecting fast-moving, very small particles. Fires don't make fast-moving small particles. They make slow, big particles. <laughs> so ionization smoke alarms were originally designed, uh, and you, you may recognize the, the name, a guy named Walter Kitta, I think it was, mm -hmm. I, think it was I think it was Walter, back in World War One built the first ionization detector to go on ammunition ships to detect fires because fires on ships carrying things that blow up is bad. He sold these things to, to the government and whatnot for World War I. That's how that company started. When they were done with the war, they started trying to figure out other stuff they could do with this gizmo. By the 60s and 70s, they started building smoke alarms or what they called smoke alarms. They're really flame detectors. So that's an ionization alarm. It's actually intended or was designed originally to detect flames. And one of the core problems with it is, is that the, there's a mismatch between the kind of material that occurs in smoke in a real fire and that that occurs in things like cooking. So if you if you cook, if you broil a hamburger or you burn a piece of toast, those produce fast moving small particles. So ionization alarms are really good at detecting those. That's why I have people all the time say, oh, my alarms work because they go off every time I cook. <laughs> well, it, what I know automatically is they've got the wrong kind of smoke alarms and mm. they're going to know every time someone burns a piece of toast and they're going to sleep through a smoldering fire where their couch or their, their mattress is burning. 
and ultimately have a high probability of death. So ionization alarms are effective for what they were intended to do, but what they're intended to do isn't to detect a fire that occurs in residential homes. Photoelectric alarms are basically, and this is a this is a bad analogy, but if you think about the sensors across your garage door, where you've got a sensor and a receiver and the smoke or something obstructs that path, it causes the garage door to stop. In this case, you've got sensors in there, the smoke disrupts the path and it sets the alarm off. It actually works a little differently than that, but that's, that's kind of close enough for government purposes. That alarm will detect slow moving large particles really well. I talked about ionization alarms having a 55% failure rate, real number. University of Texas ran a big four-year study on this, and that was the number they came up with. Photoelectric alarms have a 96% success rate. So ionization alarms have a 55% failure rate overall in real fires across all types of conditions, and that includes failures that occur because people have intentionally disconnected them or they, uh, you know, due to nuisance stripping, like if they burn toast and they get annoyed, they take the batteries out. So the 55% number includes units that have been intentionally disabled by the occupants. Photoelectric, on the other hand, has a 96% success rate. So mm. no, no smoke alarm is 100% effective because fire is too unpredictable. But literally by changing smoke alarms, you can go from a 55% chance of dying to a 4% chance of dying. So you effectively double the survival rates by simply changing the smoke alarms. Skip, can I just unpack a couple of things here? Because my mind immediately goes to when were photoelectric first put into production? And what's the major stumbling block to changing this as just take the ionization off of the shelf? What, what's so hard about that? A question that I've asked myself many times. <laughs> I guess part of it is a lot of us are wired differently than other people. And human life actually is meaningful. If I were an exec at a company like, you know, to name a name, Kitta or BRK First Alert, who makes both kinds, they make photoelectric alarms, they make ionization alarms. And I went home and looked at my, you know, kids and, and whatnot. I wouldn't want to be making alarms that kill people. I'd want to be making alarms that save people, which is theoretically the the business they're in. What it really comes down to is the same rationale that that we run into or have run into where automakers continue to make cars that blow up when people hit them from the back end because it costs $7 more per car to make that not happen. And it's cheaper to settle a few lawsuits. It's that same encounter mentality that allows this to happen. That sounds pretty harsh. That's, if you want my honest opinion, that's, that's really what it's economics. If I can jump in, I I just got to share something because there's a video that Tessa and I shared all these classes that we teach to real estate agents. And there's a little section where we do talk about photoelectric smoke alarms. And there was a great like investigative thing by Ross and reports. And it was from 2012. And they were at the Texas A&M lab or whatever. And I remember they interviewed this guy and Rawson, he's going, so if we know that people are dying, why doesn't the government change their standards? And the guy from Texas A&M says they will only respond 
when there was government pressure to do so. And he goes, so we went straight to the source and we went straight to the Consumer Product Safety Commission who oversees this. And he asked the guy at the CPSC, I mean, straight up, he says, why do we have two technologies? And the guy's like, well, they're both working. And he goes, well, we have several cases where they didn't work and we know stories where people have died. And the guy from the CPSC, he goes, well, then they, 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 uh, they need to develop a, a better escape plan. <laughs> and yes. I mean, the guy was just a stammering. I'll be nice. He didn't have a good answer. Let's put it that uh, way. That, yeah. His name was Lee. Yes. He, was the, he was the head of the engineering section at CPSC. I, I know most of the people that were on that Rawson report. The guy, um, and now I'm I'm flaking on what his name was, that runs the engineering department there. The article I had for the for the Ashy reporter on photoelectric alarms, he peer reviewed that article for me before it was published. And Jay Fleming flew down from Boston. He's the deputy fire chief and probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the U.S. on that topic. He was there at the Rawson Texas A&M story. So I know Lee is his CPSC. Can't think of the guy's first name. Kay at the time was the head of the CS, CPSC, the chairperson. I know a guy that actually had a meeting, actually three meetings with those two. And they, they admitted in a private meeting that they knew, but they couldn't figure out how to do the messaging on this so that they didn't look like they'd effectively allowed a product that killed 40,000 people on the market. And come back later and say, oops, we, we shouldn't have done that. It's, it's really embarrassing. Mm. The, the reality of the CPSC is, do you know how many products the CPSC has ever recalled? How many? Good question. None. <laughs> oh, geez. Really? Well, they don't recall products. They can. They, they can recall products. What? But one of the criteria, all the recalls you see are, if you look, they're voluntary recalls. In other words, the manufacturer wow. said, we're going to take this off the market. The CPSC, one of their criteria is that the recall can't cause undue financial hardship to the manufacturer. So the, oh my the the sad reality of this is the bigger the problem is, the harder it is to recall something. Mm. Because if they recalled every smoke alarm, every ionization smoke alarm ever made, it put two big companies out of business. Sure. So I remember, they, Ruben, they say, I'll oh, sorry to interrupt you, Skip, but in that Rasson report, they say, so ultimately the reason we still have ionization smoke alarms is because it's a business decision. Yep. Yes. The crux of the, the why we have both of them comes down to the way testing standards are developed in the United States um, and actually in Canada. We have something called a consensus standard protocol. And so UL, Underwriters Laboratory, NFPA, National Fire Protection Association, ICC, the government delegates to these organizations and, and many others the ability to make standards that are then adopted into law and codified as the standard for a given product's performance or or whatnot. There's there's a UL standard for window blind safety, you know, how the cords have to be made and, and, and whatnot. There's a standard for smoke alarm performance. There's a standard for carbon monoxide performance. So the standard process sounds fairly rational. The third of the people come from government and academia. A third of the people come from industry and a third are with what are called public members. And it's usually about 40. I think that UL 217 standard for, um, for smoke alarms has 42 people on it. Two of them are non-voting. 
one's a UL non-voting person and one's a CPSC. Like Lee was on the is on the uh, UL 217 smoke alarm committee. So they get together and they they decide what the criteria are for these smoke alarms. At what level? How do we test them? What do we do to make smoke? How dense does smoke get? How do we measure the smoke? It's just serious minutia, engineering geek stuff. It, it sounds like this should be a rational way to do it. It, it is at one, at one level. The problem is that the good and the bad news is that it takes a two-thirds vote to pass a change to the standard, and the manufacturers control one-third of the votes. So yeah. there was a <laughs> there was a, a naval admiral back in the 70s that ran naval procurement, and he said of the standards process that the standards represent the lowest level of performance acceptable to the manufacturers. This is this is, and he's talking about naval weapons. He's not talking about he's not and, and ships and stuff. He's not talking about smoke alarms. But it's the same thing applies. So as long as the manufacturers have their basically their their finger on that that trigger and they don't allow change to occur, change won't occur because it's going to cost somebody money to change from ionization to to photoelectric, and they're making money. I, mm-hmm. I had somebody come up to me after I I did a class at Ashy, and they said because uh, I. I, I always feel kind of apologetic. It sounds like I'm some kind of conspiracy not <laughs> person. And somebody came up to me afterwards and they said, you know, it's you're not a conspiracy nut if there's really a conspiracy. <laughs> I thought, I thought, okay, I feel better now. <laughs> That's but, great. But it, it, it really is. And it, it's not just smoke alarms. I know a, a lady, she lost her two-year-old to strangulation literally from window blinds. So she got herself on the UL window blind committee and they're doing the same thing. The people that make corded blinds don't want to stop making corded blinds. So they never approve a change to the standard that allows that, that prohibits them from making. And uh, they instead put requirements in that you put these stupid little labels that said, you know, they say, don't let your kid get strangled on the cords instead of making cordless blinds, which fixes the problem. Yeah. So it's not a smoke alarm problem. It's a systemic problem with Mm -hmm. the way we develop standards. And, and it's sort of the dark side of capitalism that Mm -hmm. there are people out Mm -hmm. there that put profit Mm -hmm. above, above human life. Yeah. So Skip, I, I want to just talk about something I hear a lot is that, I mean, we teach these classes and uh, I hear a lot of home inspectors say, well, yeah, so all you got to do if you want to be safest is you just install dual sensor smoke alarms, just buy the really expensive ones that have both an ionization and a photoelectric sensor. And that gives you the greatest level of protection, right? In theory, that sounds like a perfect solution. <laughs> I, I will tell you, Mark McGinn, my, my Albany fire chief, had a good response to that. He said, if you take a bucket with clean water and you take a bucket with muddy water and you mix them together, is that better? <laughs> and the answer is no. You take something that doesn't work and you take something that does work and you combine them, the outcome can't be better than the pure solution. So the initial dual alarms had some really serious problems. They actually did change the standard, the 217 standard for that. They used to require, the standard would require that if it was a dual sensor, that both sensors had to trigger in order for the alarm to actually sound. Oh, so my. So they, no made it, they, so, <laughs> they made it so the more photoelectric, difficult. 
Yeah, well, the, it was never any better than the ionization alarm. The worst case scenario. Yeah, exactly, which is defeated the person. So anyway, they, they made it so you can't have and logic. It, it wasn't a photo and ionization had to trigger. They require or logic in those where if the photo goes off or the ionization goes off, then you trigger. So since the photos almost 96% of the time going to go off faster than the ionization alarm. All you're doing is making more money for the the, uh, smoke alarm manufacturer by buying the dual sensor alarms. And you get the added benefit of having nuisance trips from the ionization alarm Mm -hmm. triggering when when you burn toast. So you get annoyed and you get an alarm that does what a photoelectric alarm does. Uh, I was inspecting one time and I happened to do a place and the the agent told me ahead of time that the guy worked for a smoke alarm company. So I was intrigued because I was like in the thick of this. So I, mm-hmm. I'm doing this guy's, it was a townhouse over on the coast and we got to talk and, and I always give people my smoke alarm talk. Sometimes you want to try to save the world one, one house at a time. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I, I get on my soapbox and I give him the photoelectric speech virtually every time I have a buyer or a seller in front of me. He was funny because he said, it sounds like you've been talking to that crazy fire chief over in the East Bay. <laughs> and I, I said, you mean work him again? And he's like, yeah, that guy. I said, well, first off, I don't think he's that crazy. Anyway, he said, well, you know, he's, I work for Kitta. I'm like the Northern California regional sales, technical sales rep. Anyway, we were we had a conversation about it and he he was giving me the company line. But the the real I think the really telling thing was when I went through his house and inspected, one hundred percent of the alarms were photoelectric alarms. He could have bought anything he wanted. He could have ah. had dual alarms. <laughs> yeah. Didn't. He could have had ionization alarms. Didn't. He could have had one of each. Didn't. He had photo alarms. Crazy. Wow. So yep, where do the the real authorities like the guys who are fighting fires and such, where do they come in on what you should put in your house? Combo so, or whatever. Well, the International Association of Firefighters, which is the largest firefighters union in the US and Canada. Last time I knew they had like three hundred and thirty thousand members. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of firefighters out there. Yeah. They have an official okay. position since the late nineties. So over 20 years that says photoelectric only alarms, no combination alarms. That's our position. Mm. And, wow. and the reason I think they passed that is really simple. If you have ionization alarms and your fire truck that you're on rolls up in front of the house, you can almost bet that the alarms went off late. And if it's an occupied house, there's probably still people inside. So you've got to send your union members inside that burning building to rescue people or pull bodies out, worst case. If they're photoelectric alarms, you pull up and out out front and you get to stand there and throw water on it because everybody got warned ahead of time. And most of the people would have been evacuated out and sitting on the on the curb waiting for you to show up to put the fire out. Which one of those mm-hmm. fires do you want to be involved mm-hmm. in fighting? I mean, I'm sure it's it's exciting to go inside a burning building, but it's also exciting not to die. So um, Well, and these guys are under enough stress the way it is, and these yep. ladies too, having to deal with fatalities at a scene is probably the last thing they ever want to see. Yeah, it's not a job I could do, and I bless them for signing up for it. So, so anyway, that's International Association of Firefighters. The fire chiefs, a lot of this is political. I mean, I, I don't have any delusions about it. 
there's a lot of politics in this because there's a lot of money involved in it. There's heavy lobbying. Like I said, the, the various standards organizations, NFPA and UL, everybody knows. I was at a building officials meeting here locally. I go to ICC, International Code Council chapter meetings locally, and I've done the smoke alarm talk for our county building departments at one of their monthly meetings. We have a UL office actually in San Jose. That's one of their, like on the West Coast, I think it's their their big office. And they always have a UL guy there. The UL guy pulled me aside, not that meeting, but one of the other ones. I think he wasn't there when when I talked. And he said, I'm, I need to get you like set straight. He said, you know, you're just confused and about what's going on with these. There isn't a problem. You know, we're doing a good job. So I, I asked him, I said, there's a UL report called a smoke characterization study they did in 2007. I said, so are you, are you familiar with that report? And he said, oh yeah, I'm really familiar with it. I said, so if, if I look on page 109 in table 25, can you explain the data in there that shows that ionization alarms didn't go off and photoelectric alarms went off 100% of the time? And I, I said, help me understand how I'm misreading that. And he said, I'll, I'll have somebody else give you a call. <laughs> and, uh, I never heard from anybody. Oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> I, I was shocked. The, the whole thing, I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but the bottom line is the house I've got, we used to have nuisance alarms all the time. Every time we'd broil a you know, steak or burn toast, the stereotypical, the alarms would go off and you're there with the windows open waving, you know stuff to try to get the smoke out of it uh, away from the alarm. I put in photoelectric alarms and literally not a not a peep out of them since. And yet I sleep better at night knowing that the alarms will actually function if something bad happens. Um, Can we circle back to the technology inside the photoelectrics and just when was that first put into practice? The thing I'm always amazed, I, I used to work in the medical industry and there was a metal that was that came out of the space industry that we used in orthopedics because it had this like super adherence to the human body. Anyway, I digress. Was there something that was like an accidental find that was technology that they put into these or was it developed specifically for the the smoke alarm? You gave a great analogy with the eyes on the garage door. Was it really like, well, let's just make smaller eyes and put it inside this? You know, I don't, I I don't know who came up with the original photoelectric alarms, but the the first alarms started showing up in the sixties in terms of residential. I think Sears was selling them and those were ionization alarms. The first UL standard for smoke alarms was developed in the kind of in the mid seventies, if memory serves. At that time, ionization alarms were were popular because they wanted a battery powered alarm where a nine volt battery would let it last one year. So that was the the one year battery thing was key, and I and I get that. At that time, photoelectric alarms, which they had back in the mid to late 70s was when the first ones came out. They used incandescent bulbs, which burn out, and and a, and a nine volt battery would not power them for an entire year. And then the other bad thing, since it was an incandescent bulb, it generated a little bit of heat and some light and bugs would actually want to fly into them and set them off because they get in there and die. So it wasn't until the early 80s that LEDs first started to come in. And at that point, they switched photoelectric alarms over to LEDs, which they still use. They got that one year. But the problem then was, if you remember the old TI watches, 
No, none of you guys are old enough for that. The, uh, the old Texas Instrument LED watches, those things were like a couple hundred bucks. LEDs were really expensive back then. Today, they're they're a commodity. Back then, they were a little bit, they were more expensive, but they worked better. The ionization alarms were cheaper and they worked really poorly, but they were cheaper. There was something in your house. It was something. And the original UL standard, which the current standard actually, the current standard that's in effect I have to be careful because there's a new standard coming into play here. The standard that's currently in effect was only designed to give you a 50% survival rate in a fire. You know, I've got a, a quick question for you, Skip. For people that are listening to this that are home inspectors, when they're going through a house, hopefully now, you know, with this knowledge, they can help educate their clients about the difference. But how do you identify what type of smoke alarm you have? You know, is there words that you can look for on the back of it or something that will tell you if it doesn't say ionization or photoelectric on it? Uh, There is. For a home inspector, it's tough because most of the time we're not going to take the alarms down. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times you have to take the alarms down. The new-ish alarms will have an embossed I or P on the on the face. So mm-hmm. I can sometimes take my flashlight, shine it on, and be able to see that I or P. If it's, it says I, it's an ionization alarm. If it says P, it's a photoelectric. If you do see the back, if it says anything about radioactive material, it's ionization. It'll have just a few micrograms of this stuff, just enough to make the ionizing feel, but it you can't have an ionization alarm without radioactive material. Okay. If it doesn't say anything, it'll be a photoelectric. They they don't make it easy to tell. For a while, if you went over to Costco, they only sell photoelectric alarms that I've seen at any Costco I've ever been in, which I've never figured out why, but I, there's a there's a backstory there someplace. Just one more yeah. reason to love Costco. Go on. <laughs> yep. The Costco alarms would say, you know, use these for best protection, which always struck me as being a pretty stupid marketing approach. Like, yeah, I want the alarms that don't give me good protection. So I want the alarms where part of my family, the in-laws maybe will die. <laughs> anyway, no, it, it, it's just, they'll say things like for kitchens, meaning they don't nuisance trip. They'll say things like for best protection. They won't say anything about, about any kind of radioactive material. Mm-hmm. The photos also have a slightly different, usually different opening in them. I, I can tell by looking at them like probably 95% of the time. You have to kind of work at it, I mm-hmm. guess is the bottom line. And, and you know, just, just to touch on the home inspection process, you talk about taking down the smoke alarm. I think I've personally done maybe a couple thousand smoke alarms where <laughs> I give it the twist. I look at the back, I put it back up. Sure. For other home inspectors out there listening, you might not be able to get it back up easily. I've had my share of ones that weren't easy to put up, but I'm also saying I've done it to a lot of them. So do that at your own risk. Yeah. And and I do something in mind that I know a lot of my brethren cringe at. I test them. I actually hit the button and the button does not test the the ability to detect smoke. It, It tests for power and audible horn. So the UL standard actually is the only approved method to test a smoke alarm. The, and the uh, the UL uh, standard requires a, that button on it. So that's intentional because the, the complexity of testing the sensor is so high that you'd never be able to make a smoke alarm that anybody could afford to buy. But we know if it makes noise that there's a 50-50 chance it's going to work or better in a fire. So knowing hitting the test button gives me some level of confidence that at least there's a prayer. If it doesn't go off, I know it's not going to work at all. So there's a hundred percent failure rate on alarms that don't 
that don't actually sound and there's a chance that they might work on ones that do so my suggestion for the any home inspectors out there is i never say that the smoke alarm worked when i tested it i just say that there's a smoke alarm in the bedroom or wherever Mm -hmm. I do say if the smoke alarm doesn't go off, that it didn't go off and it should be, we have an on-sale requirement. So it's the seller's responsibility in California to provide functional smoke alarms. I, I actually say, you know, the alarm failed to test using the manufacturer's built-in button. It should be serviced or replaced prior to the close of escrow because that's the seller's legal requirement here. Not the same elsewhere in the U.S. But anyway, so the, the whole idea of testing smoke alarms and home inspectors, if you want to start an argument at a at one of our chapter <laughs> meetings, start talking about that. Well, two things, how to strap a water heater for seismic and testing smoke alarms. You can have a knockdown drag out fight. That you can even bring up mold. Parking lot. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about mold. Oh, yeah. Uh, before we go into a rat hole like that, it, Skip, is there anything else in the market that a consumer might run across that is claims to be an alarm when it comes to smoke detection? Well, there's a few bizarre older things. There's a wind-up deal that Sears used to sell. It's really a heat sensor. I've had I've had agents actually try to pass those off as smoke alarms. They literally are a wind-up, like an old wind-up clock with a little fuse link in them. That's almost an antique kind of novelty item. There's a new generation. Uh, we talked about the UL standard. They finally have developed a new UL standard. I know, I know three gentlemen that are on that standards committee out of the 42 people. And one of them was trying since 1990, I want to say seven, when when he first got on the committee to get a revised standard that put in nuisance trip testing and changed the uh, material testing from natural products like cotton and uh, wool and pine to polyurethane foam, which is a big big problem for uh, ionization alarms, but very prevalent in houses. He's been getting that, trying to get that standard change to change the test protocol. They finally enacted one. The problem is they, they, well, they finally developed one. They have not enacted it yet. So the current standard that's published on the UL site is the ninth edition of the UL 217 standard. And it includes testing with polyurethane foam for smoldering and flaming tests, as well as for a nuisance trip where they actually they actually broil hamburgers and the alarm isn't allowed to trip when the hamburger burns. But it's um, got to go when the foam burns. Yep. It has to, it has to be able to, to differentiate. So there's a new generation of smoke alarms being developed. The biggest problem with this is CPSC and UL don't want any one manufacturer to have a monopoly on the market. And right now, Kitta is the only one that's developed a smoke alarm that complies with the new UL 217 8th and 9th standard. So BRK First Alert hasn't been able to to do it. I don't know the rationale behind that. It doesn't seem like it's that complicated. Kitta actually came out with some of these new alarms, even ahead of the adoption of the standard. That once the standard's adopted, then as states roll that into their building codes and their health and safety codes, it's you're not going to be able to sell an alarm that doesn't comply in the U.S. that doesn't meet that standard, at least that's newly manufactured, the supply chain they let 
run through. So the standard development process, as we talked about, is, is deeply flawed. So what happened was the manufacturers had lobbied for one of the parameters to be pretty loose in hopes that they would get ionization alarms to be able to comply. In fact, they couldn't even with this loosened testing criteria. But one of the side effects of that was then the new kit alarm, which is basically a two photoelectric sensor alarm with light filters on it so that it detects different colors of light. It enhances its ability to detect multiple colors of smoke. That caused that alarm to not be as effective as it probably should have been. And I think they manufactured something like 500,000 of these things. They ended up having to recall the whole bunch. So the long and the short is, yes, there's new stuff coming. They call it optical. It's a photoelectric alarm. They didn't want to say photoelectric because then they would have actually kind of been back to admitting that they were making ionization alarms that really weren't as effective as they could have been. So there's some marketing guy involvement and probably legal involvement in there. But the, the bottom line is when those alarms come to market, they will be better than photoelectric only alarms because of some of the, the testing that they're doing, but they are basically photoelectric alarms and they'll only be maybe five to 10% more effective. So instead of 96%, they might be 97%, 98% maybe on a good day. So today there's no significant loss to just putting in photoelectric alarms. We already know they work. They virtually eliminate nuisance tripping. Nuisance tripping and intentional disconnects account for almost two-thirds of, of fire deaths. So if you want the best protection, put in photo alarms. And, and um, by the time those alarms go bad in 10 years, there may be something better and you can deal with it then. Cost if I had a house with photoelectric alarms, I wouldn't go out and buy a, a new, the new generation alarms. There's just, sure. there's just not any economic benefit to doing that. Yeah. Interesting. There's a lot of depth to this conversation that you wouldn't initially think. It's like, put this or put that one up or put this one up. And, but thank you for that. I mean, it's just sometimes when you get into the minutia, the eyes roll up on the back of people's heads, but yet we're talking a 40, 35 to 40% difference in outcomes that are good versus bad. That's pretty significant. Yeah. You go from 55% failure rate to 96 success. It's you're essentially doubling survival rates. Good and, and at Costco, it's two for 35 bucks around here. That's that's a pretty cheap life insurance policy. Yeah. A lot less than what I pay for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just, just to kind of wrap it all up, if you don't know what type of smoke alarm you have, you probably have ionization. I used to go around checking these and it, I mean, it's like 95% of what I'd look at would be ionization. So if you don't know, you probably got the wrong ones. If you want to know for sure, give your test a smoke alarm, a little twist. If you see any, if you see the word radioactive on the backside of it, it's the one you don't want. Go ahead and replace your smoke alarms, get photoelectric. There's not a huge difference in price. If your, fo if your smoke alarms are yellow, they're surely more than 10 years old and they need to be replaced anyway, no matter what type of smoke alarm you have. They have a shelf life or not a shelf life. They have a life of 10 years. So you got to replace them regularly anyways, and make sure you have them in all the places where you should have them. And it means in a common area on every level, you need to put them inside of every bedroom. And well, that's all I can think of. Make sure that your house is safe. It's fire safety week. That's why we got Skip Walker on here. Thank you, Ruben, for the tutorial. I just have to relay one story. When I was with Ruben early on in my brief inspection career, we were in a house that had 
literally smoke alarms every 15 feet and <laughs> open the attic hatch yes. and the whole attic was just burned out. It was uh, remediated clearly from a fire. And it, and you were like, I knew that was going to be there. You, do, you don't look around in a small house and see seven smoke alarms and not know what happened. They had a fire here and now they're super freaked out. They're going to have another fire. So if they had an attic fire and they uh, they live to talk about it, they're really lucky because when a fire hits an attic, the fire department it, could be out front. It yeah, it wasn't and an not attic able to fire. save that house. It it was not charred. It was just black oh, because okay. of all the smoke that got up there. So well, it was actually white at the time we went there. They had sprayed yeah. everything white. Yeah. yeah. So it was probably a kitchen fire that had generated a lot of smoke. You know what um, it was? I remember that story. Gosh, we got to wrap. We're at time, but who cares? I remember the story, their furnace caught on fire, their furnace malfunction, and there was some type of electrical fire that happened in their furnace and it spread black smoke throughout their entire house. I mean, they couldn't even see and not a single smoke alarm in their house went off, nothing. And they had new smoke alarms everywhere. They're all ionization and they, they let the smoke alarm company company have it. And the smoke alarm company sent them like a huge box of photoelectric smoke alarms and CO alarms and everything you could imagine as an apology. That, that was the backstory on that one. A a colleague of mine lost uh, his daughter in an off-campus dorm fire in Ohio. And a colleague of his lost his daughter in a different off-campus dorm fire. Between those two off-campus homes, they had 21 or two fire smoke alarms. Not a single one went off between Mm. two houses. They were all ions kids died oh wow so serious this, stuff this is very serious stuff well let's let's put a wrap on it i mean check it out guys we're getting to the fall and it means it's daylight savings time for a bunch of us in this country and i guess that's when you replace your batteries and your smoke alarms so go check them out when you're replacing your batteries and replace them if they need to be replaced Thank you, Skip. We appreciate it. And we didn't even get the code check, which was another conversation we want to have. So like we tell every guest, welcome back, because we'll do uh, episode number two with you at some point here in the future. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for getting up early to uh, chat with us today. And everybody else, you've been listening to Structure Talk, a Structure Tech presentation. My name is Bill Ulrich, as always, alongside Ruben Saltzman and Tessa Murray. See, if you're paying attention, you know, I flipped at that time. So noticed, but thanks for listening. We will catch you next time. And thank you very much, Skip. We appreciate all your expertise. Have a great day, everybody. For more information on how we can provide you with the right information about your home before you buy or sell, contact us at structuretech.com.